Welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book Workshop. In this episode, two recovered alcoholics break down one chapter of the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous line by line. Find out more at ladiesbigbook.com. Thank you for listening. So chapter two, there's a solution on page 17. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. We are average Americans. All sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who would normally not mix. But there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us, but that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined." The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. So again, whenever the book says the word we, it's, it's referring to the first 100. Um, and, you know, we just finished Bill's story Um, and you know, I heard the other day, you know, Bill's story is like this, this chapter that's basically selling the rest of the book. Um, and so now we're at this position where we're learning, okay, there's a solution. And I love that it starts out saying how, you know, we are people, people, I don't know why I can't talk this morning. We are people that would normally not mix. And so the beautiful thing about AA is that we have these traditions that um, that focus on unity um, because we are going to come in to AA as people that have different political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. And none of that matters because what we have found is this solution. Um, and it compares it to, you know, um, getting, I always think of lost because of the TV show, but, um, but it's like, we've had this shipwreck and nothing else matters except a, that we've survived thus far and B, what are we going to do to continue to survive? And, um, and alcoholism just, you know, is a life or death matter. And so, um, you know, it talks about how, this, this feeling of having shared in a common peril, so this alcoholism is one element in the cement that binds us, but the thing that really binds us together is the solution. Um, and, um, you know, again, it's saying that we, the first 100, can absolutely agree um, about this, this um, and they joined in on brotherly and harmonious action um, they agreed upon this. And that's why when this book started off, it says we um, have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. The reason that they were able to recover is because they were able to absolutely agree upon this um, and, and, and do this precisely. Um, and then it just tells us this is great news um, for, for those who suffer. 
An illness of this sort, and we have come to believe it an illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. If a person has cancer, all are sorry for him, and no one is angry or hurt. But not so with the alcoholic illness, for with it there goes annihilation of all the things worthwhile in life, and engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. It brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents. Anyone can increase the list. We hope this volume will inform and comfort those who are or may be affected. There are many. Highly competent psychiatrists who have dealt with us have found it sometimes impossible to persuade an alcoholic to discuss his situation without reserve. Strangely enough, wives, parents, and intimate friends usually find us more unapproachable than do the psychiatrist and the doctor. So, um, you know, we've, we've had this shipwreck with um, not just ourselves on it, but with everyone in our life on it. And, um, you know, this book tells us that we have an illness and unlike the illness like cancer, um, we're ha- we have an illness that um, people aren't necessarily feeling sorry for us about. They're they're angry with us. They're um, you know we've hurt them in some some sort of form or fashion. And you know that's why there is this chapter two wives and two employers because um, you know this we hope that this volume can can inform and comfort and and a lot of times why. Um, you know, it's, it has that book that this is, uh, or it has that line in the forward to the first edition saying that this is helpful to anyone who reads it. Um, so, you know, we, um, we don't really want to discuss our situation with anybody that we've heard, obviously, but it says, but the ex problem drinker who has found this solution who is properly armed with facts about himself can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours until such an understanding is reached. Little or nothing can be accomplished that the man who is making the approach has had the same difficulty that he obviously knows what he is talking about, that his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect that he is a man with a real answer that he has no attitude of holier than thou Nothing, whatever, except the sincere desire to be helpful, that there are no fees to pay, no axes to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions we have found most effective. After such an approach, many take up their beds and walk again. So this is, um, these last two paragraphs are describing a sponsor. Um, and, you know, it it tells me that, um kind of what I'm looking for in a sponsor, to be honest. Like it says that, you know, I'm looking for someone that doesn't have an attitude of holier than thou, um, that wants to be helpful. Um, and you know, this person who I didn't know at all, I mean, I literally met my sponsor in, um, just like randomly. And all of a sudden, just after a few uh, minutes of talking and, and getting to know her, I'm like, wow, this person is, is on my level. This person understands what I'm saying and, and what I feel and is describing things that I have experienced, even though I've never met you before. Um, and this is important. And this is why it is so crucial um, that, we, that we work step 12 um, because 
I have to win the confidence of a newly sober woman who doesn't know what to do and doesn't understand how the heck they're supposed to go through this book and these 12 steps. Um, because I'm, I, as somebody who is brand newly sober, I wasn't listening to my family. I wasn't listening to my counselor. I wasn't listening to anybody because it felt like nobody understood, but I met the stranger and all of a sudden things clicked. So it goes on to say, none of us makes a sole vocation out of this work, nor do we think its effectiveness would be increased if we did. We feel that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. A much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. All of us spend much of our spare time in the sort of effort which we are going to describe. A few are fortunate enough to be so situated that they can give nearly all their time to the work. If we keep on the way we are going, there's little doubt that much good will result, but the surface of the problem would hardly be scratched. Those of us who live in large cities are overcome by the reflection that close by hundreds are dropping into oblivion every day. Many could recover if they had the opportunity we have enjoyed. How then shall we present that which has been so freely given us? And so this, this paragraph above, um, it talks about how like the elimination of the drinking is but a beginning. And that's why, you know, you'll hear a lot of times like women who have recovered saying, you know, I'm so grateful um, that I'm a recovered alcoholic. Alcohol is, is, was the smallest thing it felt like I came in here with this alcohol problem um, thinking that alcohol was my problem. And then this, um, this, 12, these 12 steps that I did to fix that problem actually fixed a much bigger problem that I didn't even know that I had. And so this elimination of drinking is but a beginning, but, um, you know, going forward and carrying this message is, is crucial. And it's telling us that we can't, um, like we don't make a soul vocation out of this work. So now, you know, much different than in 1939, but now there's a lot of treatment centers and there's a lot of places and there's recovery coaches and there's all of these things. But, um, and as somebody who works in that type of field, that is not my 12 step work. That is my work work. And my 12 step work is, is totally separate from that. I cannot rely on, on something that I'm getting paid to do to be this, um, what I'm doing to carry this message and, and to carry this to the newcomer. Okay, we have concluded to publish an anonymous volume setting forth the problem as we see it. We shall begin to the task. We shall bring to the task our combined experience and knowledge. This should suggest a useful program for anyone concerned with a drinking problem. Of necessity, there will have to be discussion of matters medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these matters are, from their very nature, controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. We shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help to meet their needs. And this is kind of alluding to, um, I mean, this is the chapter, <laughs> there is a solution. So this is alluding to 
Um, the solution is this constant thought of others. Um, my sponsor tells me that all the time now. Okay, so you may have already asked, you may already have asked yourself why it is that all of us became so very ill from drinking. Doubtless, you are curious to discover how and why, in the face of expert opinion to the contrary, we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. If you are an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking, what do I have to do? It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. We shall tell you what we have done. Before going into a detailed discussion, it may be well to summarize some points as we see them. How many times people have said to us, I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? Lay off the hard stuff. His willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him. But there he is, all lit up again. Now, these are commonplace observations on drinkers, which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from ours. And so this is, you know, why this this book in um, is so important, because um, I didn't know that I drank differently until I was sitting in a, a foundation meeting and learning about, you know, the steps and having this explained to me for the first time, as opposed to just reading the 12 steps, um, you know, the way that they're laid out on 59, but having step one explained to me that I react differently. And so of course, somebody who doesn't react the way that I react to alcohol is going to say all these things and, and look at me and think, wow, like, she's crazy. You know, all of these things are happening. You know, I would quit if that was happening to me, but it's because they don't have this, um, this, this hopeless condition of mind and body. And so, um, again, this is why it's really helpful for even non-alcoholics to read this book and understand, um, these different types of drinkers. And so it goes in and it says moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. So this is really important. So there's, it's, you know, kind of grouping drinkers into three categories and this moderate drinker is, you know, I feel like, um, so the person that can literally have one beer and then be done with, with drinking for the night. Um, they, they can go to a party and they're like, "Mm, I don't feel like drinking tonight. I'm not going to have any, I'm good. Um, like they, they really don't, um, they they just don't really care about it. Maybe they drink and they're like, Ooh, it makes me feel kind of crazy and out of control. And I don't like it. And then there's this other person that's a hard drinker and a hard drinker looks a lot like an alcoholic. Um, a hard drinker is, you know, the, the people that I were drinking with, um, drink for drink and, 
um, for me specifically, it was, you know, working in the service industry and these people would get, would get new jobs or they would get a new relationship or they would have a kid or whatever it was, and they would be able to change their drinking. And that's what this is saying is so a hard drinker um, is is going to drink a lot because they like they like drinking like me the alcoholic they like drinking but if there's a sufficient reason for them to stop they're going to be able to stop because they don't have this body and this mind like I do and so um, some of these people it says you know they might need medical attention so some of these people end up in treatment. Um, you know, they, they, they might just need, um, a trigger list or something that, you know, helps them to be able to think through the drink. A a hard drinker can think through their drink and decide not to drink. A real alcoholic can think through the drink and then be like, oh, it's going to go differently. It's not going to be like that. And it doesn't work. And so, um, you know, this is why we talk about, it's not about, um, the external consequence of, consequences of our drinking because, um, you know, compared to me, there could be a hard drinker out there that has a lot more external consequences than I ever did, but those aren't what make that person an alcoholic. Um, and, um, what I have, even though I might not have those external consequences, I am different when it comes to my body and my mind. And so it picks up and it says, but what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker, He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker, but at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. And so I have next to this, I've written alcoholic. And the the important thing about this too is that this is a progressive illness. And so, you know, some of us start out And, um, you know, we drink the same from, from the moment we start drinking, but there are other alcoholics who do, they go through this progression, right? They start out as a moderate drinker. Um, they become, um, a continuous hard drinker, but then they lose all control. And what we remember from the the doctor's opinion is that, um, he says this, this allergy, this abnormal reaction never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So that loss of control in that form of an allergy never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Um, So even though like for me, I think I could think back on a couple of times where, you know, um, I was able to have a couple um, that was like one out of, you know, 25 times. Right. Um, But there's this, this, point that I pass and it it addresses it a little bit further on in this chapter, but it, there's this point that I pass of basically no return. And I, I, I begin to lose all control. Here's the fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. He has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. But in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. 
He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes and has a promising career ahead of him. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. He is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around. So <clears throat> here, you know, this this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and I'm, I never even saw that book, whatever, if that's a book or a movie, but but I could relate to this because, um, like, I, I understood that I was too, two-faced, essentially. And I remember I had a name for my drunk self, and it was Nasty Nina. And, um, you know, in my mind, Nasty Nina did these things that, you know, normal Nina would never do. And, um, and, you know, I, I came into AA and I found out, wow, you know, I'm with my people that did this as well. But he, he it describes all of these ways that we, we are puzzling. Like what we're doing is so absurd to those people around us because it, it, it is crazy. And, and, you know, it, we, we talk about how we're insane when it comes to alcohol and what we do, it, it's really insane. And so it's painting this picture for us. And, and I love that this calls out how we're perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. There is this idea um, this that an alcoholic is a bum under a bridge who has lost everything and drinking on a paper bag. Um, and, and that is, there's, I'm sure there's bums under the bridge that are alcoholics, but a lot of us have jobs and we are, you know, in positions, you know, of, of leadership and, and doing these things that, um, we are really well, well managed in other areas of our life. And we have a lot of self-will <laughs> we've, we've used it in our drinking. Um, but, but when it comes to alcohol, it's just like, there's something off and there is something off with us. Um, and you know, it talks about how we have the, uh, we just get tight at the last minute. And I remember thinking, okay, just don't drink, just don't drink, just don't just like, wait till this like interview is like, you know, you have an interview at four o'clock. So just don't drink. You can make it till six o'clock after the interview. And the next thing you know, I've waited all the way up until like three 30 in my car. And I'm like, I got to have something to take the edge off. And that's like, it, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Um, so it says yet early next morning, he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe. As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative with which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. Well, we don't use morphine to taper off alcohol anymore. Um, but, you know, the, there's this kind of like idea that, oh, like, well, maybe, um, you know, we just need to replace the alcohol with this other thing. And again, maybe for non-alcoholics that can work. Um, there's a lot of drugs now that, you know, are for not drinking or um but when it comes to the real alcoholic, um, we're, we're going to take those drugs and then we're going to drink, right? Because like, it, it, it's just, um, this is, this is the way that we are built. And especially, you know, once I put that drink in my body, I, I need more alcohol. I like, I'm physically needing more alcohol. 
So it says, this is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic as our behavior patterns vary, but this description should identify him roughly. And that's so important because when we come in here and we're new, we think, oh, but I, I did never do that sedative thing. Like that is too far down the line. Never did that. But it's, it's, I can look for reasons that I belong or I can look for reasons why I don't belong. And I'll find either if I'm an alcoholic, I can find whatever I'm looking for, but this is giving us a, a, a generalized description. Um, um, and, and for me, you know, I didn't relate to some of this, but other things I was like, yep, yep, yep. Check, check, check. Um, so it goes on to say, why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all of the tenant suffering and humiliation, why is it he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? Perhaps there will never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We are not sure why once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever into his system, something happens, both in the bodily and mentally sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. So, you know, it's, it's compare it's saying, you know, um, when the alcoholic keeps away from drinking as he may do, he reacts like other men. And, and, um, I think that's talking about when, when that alcoholic is working a program, but it's saying, you know, just once that alcohol takes, takes a drink, um, this, this reaction happens in his mind and in his body. And, um, you know, he's on one of those sprees again and emerging with a firm resolution not to drink and, um, doing it over and over again. And, you know, it says all we need is the experience of an alcoholic will, will abundantly confirm this. Um, I'm going to leave the rest to Kat because I think it all goes together. So I'll pass it off to Kat. Thanks, Nina. That was awesome. You're the best. Um, okay, so my name is Catherine. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Um, and we are in, uh, again, there is a solution. So we're still not at the solution. <laughs> we are seven pages into this chapter and we're still not at the solution. And we're going to be, could be a couple more pages before we get there. Um, they, the funny thing about this book is, you know, it's the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous is contained in this book. And if you want to do the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you need to do what's in this book. Now this book is, you know, a hundred and, excuse me, uh, the dog was barking, 164 pages long. We're on page 23. We still haven't even gotten to the solution, which is pretty interesting. Um, so, uh, okay, so page 23. Um, what it's told us so far is a lot about what happens when I put alcohol in my body, um, which Nina has described in detail. And it's talked to us a little bit about the difference between a hard drinker and a real alcoholic. And that is really important. 
Um, because I know a lot of hard drinkers that drink pretty hard and they still don't react to alcohol like I do. Um, and I've seen a lot of hard drinkers get real drunk and then stop abruptly at three in the morning to, I don't know, go to bed. Whereas I'm like, Oh, I'm going to go, go get more at the store. Um, or stop abruptly at 11 o'clock so they can drive home at two o'clock in the morning. I've seen that happen. And it was shocking. And I'm obsessed with behavior like that. I think it's fascinating. It's like watching another species um, on like Nat Geo. It's really interesting behavior. Uh, so we that's the body part though. Like I have a physical difference from those people that makes it impossible for me to control my drinking. Um, when I do control my drinking, it's more out of luck than that I just exerted my willpower. It's just I happened to not drink that much that night. And, uh, and I just got lucky. So the question is, why do I keep doing this? Um, because it tells us, like, if I just stop drinking, then I'm just like everybody else. But when I, when I put it in my body, it makes it really hard for me to stop. So it says these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. So um, none of this would matter if I never drank. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Um, okay, cool. So I thought my problem was that I kept losing jobs or that I had no money or that like, I don't know, I was depressed <laughs> or like that I needed, you know, a job or that um, everybody just needed to get off my back. But that's not what this is saying. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. So if we say alcoholism is a twofold disease we spent all this time talking about the physical part. Turns out the physical part is just like a very small portion of that, maybe like 10 to 25%. The mind part is the main problem because that's the problem that keeps telling me the physical part is not a big deal. If it were anything else that was causing me such trouble once I started, I probably just would stop doing it. Even if it was hard, even if it was difficult, even if it was like something I really enjoyed, which by the way, I've had to quit things I really enjoy, like Diet Dr. Pepper. I really like Diet Dr. Pepper, but I had to quit Diet Dr. Pepper and it was hard and it was troublesome. I was a hard Diet Dr. Pepper drinker. I, I had the habit badly enough to gradually impair me physically and mentally because diet soda is bad for you. But I had to quit the warning of a doctor. So I quit and it was difficult, but I quit. I could never do that with alcohol. So it tells us why. If you ask him why he started on that last fender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. An alibi is an excuse usually intended to avert blame or punishment. I had a million alibis. I had a whole ton of reasons to drink. It says sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility. Something that's plausible appears reasonable, but is actually false. 
but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. Um, whatever the reason that I have to drink is, it's never, ever justifies what I'm, what I'm putting myself in risk of hap- happening. Like, it does not matter because literally every time I'm picking up a drink, I am putting myself at risk of causing physical harm to my body serious grievous damage like not just putting my life on the line we're talking like falling down and breaking your arm like walking down the street and getting assaulted like it does not matter walking in front of a car getting behind a wheel in and plenty of you if you are a real deal alcoholic have probably experienced any number of these things and yet I keep doing it telling myself that the reason that I have to do it makes sense as if it's not going to happen that time they sound like the philosophy of a man who having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache or for instance an alcoholic saying i have a hangover so i'm going to have a drink to make the hangover go away and then i have 20 drinks and i'm drunk again and i make the hangover worse it does not make sense given the havoc that comes afterwards if you draw this fallacious, something that's fallacious is tending to mislead, reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he would laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. I would do both. Once in a while, he may tell the truth, and the truth, strange to say, is that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time. Like, I thought I was, like, a party girl. Like, first of all, I was not a party girl. Not at the end. I was like a party girl in my own bed with my little dent in the bed from like sitting in it watching TV on my computer. Um, but in their hearts, they really do not want to know why they do it. Um, once this malady, a malady is a disease or a disorder of the body, has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that someday, somehow, someday they will beat the game. Like one day I'm going to figure it out. And an obsession is an irrational thought that occurs over and over and clouds out the other rational thoughts. For instance, I need to sleep. If I don't sleep, I'm, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be bad. And to sleep, I need to drink. But if I drink, I'm going to lose my housing. I can't drink or I won't have a place to live. But I need to sleep. To sleep, I need to drink. The obsessive thought, I need to drink, I need to drink, I need to drink, occurs over and over and clouds out the rational thought, if I drink, I lose my housing. And then I drink and I lose my housing. Not that that's ever happened to me. Oh, wait, it totally has. Okay. But they often suspect they are down for the count. How true this is, few realize, in a vague way, friends and family... Families and friends, since these drinkers are abnormal, but everybody hopefully awaits the day the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. And the worst part of that is they probably have seen some hard drinkers do that. And they really hope the chronic alcoholic will do what the hard drinker has. The tragic truth is that if the man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. He has lost control. At the certain point, and this one's huge, at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, 
he or she passes into a state where the most powerful desire, so no matter how much I want to, to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. This tragic situation has arrived in practically every case long before it's suspected. So maybe I could have quit drinking when I was like 19. Probably not because I didn't have any reason to. But by the time I needed to, I couldn't have. Um, And then it says in this little squiggly line paragraph, the fact is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drink. Um, So they're saying we don't know why, but alcoholics have no power of choice over whether or not they drink. And I'm thinking to myself, that's not true. I choose to drink when I drink. Um, But here's the thing is that not long before I choose to drink, I often have chosen not to drink and I keep unmaking that decision. So can I ever choose to drink when, or can I ever choose to not drink if I'm constantly choosing to drink right after I choose to not drink? I'm never actually choosing to do anything because I'm always going to end up drinking. Um, I'm never actually making a decision at all. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. So that thing that I think is going to get me out of this, my willpower is just not going to work. We are unable at certain times. Oh, and this is, that's a really messed up part because sometimes I can't stay sober. And it's like those times that make me think that maybe I'm not an alcoholic but it's never for sure. And it's never really long enough that I need. like, it's never like forever Um, to bring into our consciousness with, so I can't remember hard enough, right? That's what this next line says to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force. So something that's sufficient is enough to meet the need, the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. So, Something really bad happens. I get really drunk. I pass it on the train. I wake up in Coney Island. It's 2.30 in the morning. A week to a month later, I have forgotten how bad it was. And I'm drinking again. Um, that's what that's saying. That should be bad enough to keep me from drinking forever. Especially if it's not the first time something like that has happened. But for me, it actually, it wasn't even a week to a month. I mean, it was probably like the next day. It says we are without defense against the first drink. So defense is, the word defense means, is, am I capable of resisting an attack? And I'm not. It is the alcoholism that's the attack. The attack is going to get the drink. Can I defend myself from the alcoholism pushing me to that drink? And I can't. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. It's like I'll start bargaining with myself about it. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that we shall handle this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. Or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often have some of us begun to drink in this nonchalant way and after the third or fourth pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, 
for God's sakes, how did I ever get started again? Only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> or what's the use anyhow? By the way, um, I think it's like five drinks is binge drinking, technically. Uh, that defense works everywhere else in my life. If I do something and it hurts me, I tend to not do it again. Um, it says, when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid and unless locked up may die or go permanently insane. Um, and the crazy thing is, is that I will drink myself into those places trying to prove to myself that that's not the case. It is so hard for me to accept that that defense doesn't exist. It's like, I can't under comprehend a world where I am not capable of overcoming this problem because there is no other part of my life where I am not capable of dealing with problems like this. I do not have another area where my arsenal of tactics to handle issues like alcoholism do not work. And I will keep drinking myself to death because of that until I can accept that I am just completely beyond human aid. Um, these stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legions of alcoholics throughout history, but for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop, but cannot. It says there is a solution. Okay, finally. So we're, you know, what, eight, nine pages into the chapter. But then it says almost none of us liked it because a price has to be paid. And you're either going to pay it inside AA or outside AA. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. But like Nina was saying, we saw that it worked, really worked in others. And we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living in. No kidding. Like I was crushed, like flattened on the ground. So I was kind of like, well, I didn't actually, I didn't even think it would work, but I was like, okay, whatever. Um, when, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. So I'm not getting, my, my sponsor doesn't keep me sober. It's the spiritual tools that, that keep me sober. And here's the other thing is that I'm not waiting for, a, now that I'm one of the people with the tools to show someone how to use them, I'm not waiting for an alcoholic to come to me. I'm approaching alcoholics. We were approached. So I approach alcoholics to help them as a sponsor. I don't sit around in my home group waiting for alcoholics to come to me. I go out and I find alcoholics to help. We have uh, found much of heaven in, and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension, which is the spiritual dimension of existence of which we have not even dreamed. And that was the difference between the women who, I saw who were working this solution and the women who were simply being sober one day at a time. There were the women who were free from alcohol and then there were the women who were just sober. And I wanted to, to be like, it was the women who were free of alcohol and didn't just, just didn't want to drink at, at all ever. Didn't, didn't care about it. Didn't think about it. It wasn't a big deal. 
they were the ones that were in this fourth dimension and I wanted what they had, even though I still didn't think I could have it. I was like, this is a bunch of hippie crap. No way. But still worked. The great fact is just this and nothing less that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and, and lives in a way in which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we can never do by ourselves. So it calls God a fact which for me, God is is as tangible as being a fact today, which is cool because I didn't ever think that could be the case. It says, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle of the road solution. So the position of this book is very clear. Either you are, if you are a chronic hopeless alcoholic like I am, you are in need of spiritual help or you will drink yourself to death or end up in jail or in a mental institution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible and if we had passed into the region from which there is no return from human aid, so we're passing into the place where we cannot get help from anything on earth, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. And the other to accept spiritual help. Okay, so this is what got me to actually do the steps. Because I knew what blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best I could was because I've been doing it and I watched other people do it until they died. And I knew how miserable it was. And I knew that was my future. I knew it in my heart and I knew I would rather die than go through that. So I was like, okay, well that's worse than death. It wasn't that I didn't want to die. So I'm doing steps. It's that I didn't want to live like that. So I'm doing the steps. Death would be better than that. So I'm like, all right, well, I accept the spiritual help. Um, this we did because we honestly wanted to. So I honestly wanted to, and I was willing to make the effort. It doesn't say we did because we believed it would work, which was good for me because I didn't think it would work. <laughs> okay, so then it gives us this example of this certain um, American business. So a certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. For years, he had, he had floundered from one sanitarium or, you know, treatment center to another. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrist. Then he had gone to Europe. So he tried uh, Sigmund Freud first, but he was busy. So he placed himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist Dr. Dr. Jung, who was Carl Jung, one of the forefathers of modern psychiatry, who prescribed for him. Though experience made him skeptical, he finished treatment. This is for a year. He went through treat. He flew to, he, sorry, not flew. He took a boat to Europe, not a boat. You know, he probably flew to Europe. And he sat in Austria for a year with this guy for treatment. Like, you think your treatment was bad. He went to Austria. There's not much to do in Austria. I don't know. I've never been to Austria. Um, though experience made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with unusual confidence. His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed he acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. So he had a lot of self-knowledge. Nevertheless, he was drunk on a short, in a short time. He didn't even make it off the continent. He got drunk on the train. 
Um, more baffling still, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. So have you ever just like found yourself drunk for no particularly good reason? And you're like, how did I even get started? Like that's what happened to this guy, except it was on a train, um, which totally has happened to me on Amtrak. Uh, Amtrak makes you drink. Those of you who aren't from the Northeast don't understand, but trust me. Um, so he returned to this doctor whom he admired, of course, and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems, yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why, why was this? He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. It's like, ouch, that sucks. He could never regain his position in society, and he would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. This was a great physician's opinion. Do you guys remember, like, maybe, like, 10 or 15 years ago when Lindsay Lohan had a sober bodyguard? That's what that always makes me think of. I don't think Lindsay Lohan stayed sober when she had a sober bodyguard. That's just my opinion. But this man still lives and is a free man. He does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go anywhere on this earth where other friend may go without disaster, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's some good news. Some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. Let us tell you the rest of the conversation our friend had with his doctor. So this is kind of like, this helped me this whole thing because I was like, well, maybe I could just go to a therapist and that'll fix it. But this guy went to Carl Jung for a year and that didn't fix him. So I was, then I was like, well, crap, I guess I really am going to have to do this God thing. So the doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with um, a clang. So he says a chronic alcoholic. So a non-chronic alcoholic, like a hard drinker, can use other means. It's, the book makes a very clear distinction between the hopeless alcoholic like me and the hard drinkers that can maybe go to a couple of AA meetings, go to therapy, but they don't have to rely on God for everything, including their sobriety. Um, he said to the doctor, uh, is there no exceptions? Yes, replied the doctor. There is. Exceptions to, such case, to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. This is going to define what a spiritual experience is. He says, to me, these occurrences are phenomena. That means he can't explain them. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Um, so that kind of intimidates me, but I'll say something about it in a second. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. In fact, I have begun been trying to produce such some such emotional rearrangement with you with many individuals like hard drinkers the methods which i employed are successful but i have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description like a chronic alcoholic so that intimidates me a lot basically what it's saying is that i have to have this huge emotional displacement to become a recovered alcoholic um the good news is is that um by relying on God, God takes care of all of that for me. And all I have to do is just follow the instructions and the steps. And it's like, I kind of just wake up the next day and um, 
I'm like a nicer person. Uh, and I'm like not as much of an asshole. So that's kind of cool. Um, it's weird. So upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved for he reflected that after all, he was a good church member. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his religious convictions were very good, in his case, they did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. So that helped me a little bit because I'm not real into the church thing. Like, I think it's good for everybody else, but like it weirds me out a little bit. Um, like the singing part bothers me. Uh, so I was like, good, I don't have to go to church. But for people who, who are really into a particular religion, um, it can be a little weird because it's like, well, actually, that's great. But you have to do this other stuff over here in addition to that. Um, actually, you have to do this first and then you do that on top of it because it doesn't spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. And my note on this is that faith alone is not enough. And what we're looking for is action and full dependence on God, which we learn how to do that through the steps. And um, you can try to do it your own way, but that's um, another way of depending upon yourself and not on God, if that makes sense at all. So... Here was the terrible dilemma in which our friend found himself when he had the extraordinary experience. He did an earlier version of the steps through the Oxford groups, which we have already told you made him a free man. We, in our turn, sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. What seemed at first a flimsy reed, has, which is kind of cool, has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, or if you prefer, a design for living that really works, which is totally true. True even when things are really, really awful or really great. The distinguished American psychologist, William James, in his book, Varieties of Religious Experience, indicates a multitude, so there's a lot of different ways of ways in which men have discovered God. We have no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way by which faith can be acquired. If we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may form an, a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. Those having religious affiliations will find here nothing disturbing to their beliefs or ceremonies. There is no friction among us over such matters. Um, we think it no concern of ours what religious bodies our members identify themselves with as individuals. Uh, this should be an entirely personal affair with each one, which each one decides for himself in the light of past associations or his present choice. Not all of us join religious bodies, but most of us favor such memberships. Um, AA has no opinion on like what you do or like we don't all have to believe in the same God and you are perfectly welcome to go to whatever church you want to uh, in addition to what you're doing with this program. If you want to do this program, if you want to try to find God another way, that is also a perfectly acceptable thing to do. Um, this is not the only way to find God. This is however written specifically for alcoholics and it works extraordinarily well. I highly recommend it. Um, in the following chapter, there appears an explanation of alcoholism as we understand it. 
Then a chapter addressed to the agnostic. Many who were once in this class are now among our members. Surprisingly enough, we find such convictions no great obstacle to spiritual experience. Thank God. Further on, clear-cut directions so are given showing how we recovered. So they give us 30 pages worth of instructions that will take you through steps 3 through 11, which is pretty great. These are followed by 42 personal experiences. Each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. Now, this is talking about the stories that they had in the first edition. If you read the ones they have in the fourth edition, they don't read like that anymore. Um, these give a fair cross-section of our membership and a clear-cut idea of what has actually happened in their lives. So when they talk about stuff like that, like if you read them now, a lot of them talk about meetings and stuff, and they don't talk as much about God. Just That's just something I've noticed. We hope no one will consider these self-revealing accounts in bad taste. Our hope is that many alcoholic men and women desperately in need will see these pages, and we believe it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they will be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them too. I must have this thing. And that's it. Thank you so much, guys. Y'all are the best. Thank you for listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book Workshop. This recording is not associated with any AA group or AA world services. Find out more at ladiesbigbook.com.